Daily Bird. I'm Keshav Thadamati, and this is In The Know. This time on the podcast, we start with some introductions and begin with the place where all things opinion start, with student politics. So the name of this podcast, In The Know, says it all. This podcast is about ensuring the campus community is in the know about what's happening on campus. But the aim isn't to read off headlines to you. It's to ensure you understand the underlying story, to ensure you really are in the know about what's happening on campus. The Daily Rune publishes news stories. We publish opinion columns. We write editorials. We do analytical pieces. And each of these require their own reporting and research. But we don't always get to investigate relevant campus experiences in detail. The news cycle is just too fast for that. In the Know is the place to do just that. To stop, to reconsider, and to delve into the intricacies. We want to look at the lesser-known details of campus happenings and understand how these stories play into the larger UCLA narrative. Every two weeks, we'll bring on a member of the Daily Bruin staff who was reported on a relevant and resonating piece, and we'll add another dimension to that work. So to start things off, we thought it best to begin with a topic that has energized, frustrated, and confused students for years on end, the undergraduate student government. The votes are in, and UCLA students pick Bruins United presidential candidate Marwa Casey. For 3,597 votes, as opposed to 2,915 votes, or 55% to 45%, your next financial supports commissioner is Heather Rosen. After three rounds of voting, by a count of 2,589 votes to 2,465 votes, Jamie Kenner is So we'll start off at the beginning. What is USAC? So USAC is UCLA's undergraduate student government. The abbreviation stands for Undergraduate Students Association Council. Abhishek Shetty is a senior staffer in the Daily Bruins opinion section. He's a member of the Daily Bruins editorial board and has reported extensively about the undergraduate student government over the past three years. He's what you'd otherwise call the Daily Bruins' unofficial USAC historian. So, comprising of 14 members right now, the council controls a pretty sizable budget, close to around $9 million, $10 million. So, USAC is somewhat of an important thing on campus. What, what does it do, and why does it exist? I guess if I had to say why it exists, well, students want their voice to be represented democratically and yeah that's why we have a student government here and in a lot of other colleges across the U.S. but so what it does well varies depending upon the officer we're talking about within the council so since there are 14 council members that includes the president the external vice president who focuses on things like lobbying for the needs of students when it comes to funding for the University of California. Then you have the internal vice president who focuses on things within the council. 
and you have general representatives who can basically have free choice to determine what they want to work on to help the student body. One thing that students really tend to associate with USAC is campus politics. And I guess something that really people tend to think is that USAC is always affiliated with a sort of divisive campaign slate politics. Were slate politics always part of USAC? In a way, yes, officially and non-officially. It's varied a lot over the years. The official, it only became more official part of USAC in the early 2000s, late 90s. But slates, in a way, were kind of within the fabric of USAC early on in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. I guess then, let's start at the very beginning, when UCLA was created in 1919. The first student government existed right at the inception of UCLA in the 1919-1920 to academic year. And the first student president was was affiliated with Greek organizations, that is, fraternities and sororities. So, in fact, during this first inception period of about, say, 30 years of UCLA, from 1920 to 1950, it was pretty common for the people in student government to be associated with Greek life. In fact, it was so uncommon for a non-Greek life person to be part of student government or part of USAC that here's what William Ackerman wrote in a book about UCLA, about the first non-fraternity student body president who presided during 1931 to 1932. So the guy's name was McHenry Dean, and here's what Ackerman wrote. Dean was perhaps more attuned to the needs of non-fraternity and non-sorority students than most presidents, and he succeeded in bringing a higher percentage into active participation in student body activities. So I guess that gives some kind of an insight into the fact that student government was kind of a Greek life-oriented body in the beginning of UCLA. So Greek life then, we could say, was a really central part of the UCLA narrative. Yeah, it was a pretty central part of the UCLA narrative. In fact, if you go and see Daily Bruin's news coverage in that time period, there's a lot of coverage of Greek life events that you wouldn't see today. What happens from then? Where do we where does the interest in from members who aren't part of Greek life come up from? So basically in the nineteen sixties, up until nineteen sixty three actually the composition of USAC was kind of like a high school student council. There were class representatives like freshman president, senior president, the upper division representatives and lower division representatives. It's kind of made of those student blocks representatives and there were no apparent politics, no apparent slates involved in USAC and you could see that it was mostly white-dominated. Now, there is one exception to this non-political structure of the Student Council, because in 1962, the Student Council actually organized a referendum to fund bail for freedom riders who were part of UCLA and who were arrested in Jackson, Mississippi that year. So you could say that the council per se, was a socially conscious 
but largely white-dominated institution then. Yeah, you could say that the Freedom Rider incident, I guess that kind of politics wasn't a main part of the student council, but, and yeah, it was mostly dominated by Greek life representatives and such. So what kind of things did USAC do back then, given the sort of class representative structure and whatnot? So I guess if you look at Daily Boon coverage of candidates back then, you can notice that they're mainly focused on, oh, how can we bring more student representation into student activities and how can we engage the student body with our council, that kind of stuff. So you're saying more of like a programming-centric council? Yeah, that, that would be an accurate take. When does this largely white-dominated, apolitical, bereft of slates student council shift to one that's at least more affiliated with campus parties? Well, the change was very gradual because it was very dependent on the demographic breakdown of UCLA. So as you would expect, UCLA was a mostly white student body early on. And as the years progressed, as you came to the 60s, more students of color began to be part of the student body. And you could see some changes in the student council due to that. If I had to pinpoint the major change that took place, so in 1965, commissions were created on USAC, and it represented a change from the kind of class representative positions that you had on the council. So Jeff Donfeld, who was behind the creation of commissions on USAC, said that he wanted to reduce the power blocks created by a Greek life-dominated student government. And his efforts succeeded. And by the way, Jeff Donfeld was a non-Greek life-affiliated student body president. So that kind of played a role probably in his decision. So you're saying that the modern sort of cultural affairs commission, campus events commission, student wellness commission were all created in the sort of 1965, 1964 time period because of Jeff Donfield and largely the other student leaders of the time. Well, the positions weren't exactly the same, but Jeff Donfeld played a major role in creating the composition of USAC that we see today. So what happens from then? So after that, from 1965, 1966, and 1967, there was this kind of lull in Greek life student participation in USAC. And then 1968 happens. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech somewhere I read of the freedom of press somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right there was a slate a kind of slate that emerged called the Robin Hood slate and I guess you would be able to tell from the name that Robin Hood slate wanted to speak for the students and not just for the few connected students who are already in the student council. So here was one student, her name was Laura Ho, who was running as part of the Robin Hood slate, 
In her campaign statement in the Daily Bruin, she wrote, I'm running in order to change the university into a human place where it is possible to learn and to act on the problems which threaten to tear this country up. Now, that doesn't sound like a typical student council statement that you'd hear from the 60s. That's kind of political in a way. But I guess the most important event that happened that year was a Viva Zapata party. You! Yes, my president. What is your name? Emiliano Zapata. The Phi Kappa Psi fraternity held its annual Viva Zapata party where a large replica of the Mexican flag was displayed. And instead of depicting the eagle and the serpent on the cactus in the Mexican flag, it had a giant middle finger. A middle finger, you're saying? Yeah. Okay. So... The United Mexican-American Students, which was an organization representing Latino students on campus, was pretty upset at this and led a huge protest. Basically, they ended up forcing the administration to take action against the fraternity. And in response to this, the, the students who were part of fraternities, they weren't pretty happy that these students were trying to take action against the fraternities that they were part of. What kind of action did UCLA take against these fraternities? Basically, Chancellor Murphy announced the suspension of the Phi Psi fraternity between May and September. And Greek life students were not happy with this. In fact, 1,500 students mobilized and protested near the Chancellor's office against this decision. 1,500 Greek life members. Yeah, that's a pretty huge mobilization. Wow. Like, okay. I, it's kind of hard to imagine something like that happening today. So at the same time that this Rivas Apata party was happening, USAC elections were taking place. And Greek life-backed student candidates ended up winning seats onto the council mostly. And here was one student of color writing a letter to the editor in the Daily Burn. The student writes, Greeks united all right. They realize that if there's anything that threatens the white-dominated high school-type government we have had over the years, it is a thinking black man. That is why they voted for Richard Gross, who was the Greek life-backed president candidate. Some may call it Greek power. I think a more accurate description would be white backlash, wrote the student. One phrase really sticks with me, and I wonder if you can comment on it, is this notion of Greeks united. In our current politics, we see this notion of a Bruins united. Would you say that that's sort of the predecessor to some of the campus slates that we see in today's day and age? In a way, this kind of organization was, in a way, a predecessor to what we see today because Greek life students organized behind these certain candidates and managed to successfully elect them to the student council. And when you say there's sort of a white backlash, what what sort of backlash was there against? Was it just this Viva Zapata party or was there other sort of policies of this previous council for years past since... Um, Don Phil had created this commission system that this backlash was sort of brewing and attempted to correct for. I guess our best way to look into that would be this article from May 27, 1968 by Daily Bruin Associate Editor Alan Mann. Mann writes in a news analysis piece after the election, what has ensued from the reaction and counter-reaction to the Phi Kappa Psi 
controversy has created a polarization of views on the campus not seen since the Greeks stopped the free speech movement here with their own responsible free speech movement. And he writes at the end of the article, even if the cries of Greek power wane and finally die during the course of next year, the residual effects of the election are a permanent factor to next June. So this is kind of what you would follow as a freezing cold take and really, really accurate for the next 50 years, really, because you'd see this kind of formation of power blocks in student government. And going to your question about how there were other instances that led to the white backlash, man rights, politics on this campus has for a long time been a one-sided affair controlled by the liberal and radical elements. Requests and demands of the black and brown communities on campus over the course of this year have been granted with little opposition from the rest of the community. But the emergence of the conservative Greeks as a viable political force on campus has developed into a very real two-sided political picture with the black, brown, and radical white students on one side and conservative Greeks on the other. Basically, 49 years after UCLA's founding, we have two sides in campus politics. We have sort of a left, sort of ideologically similar to what you would say our modern Democratic Party is, and other that's conservative? Would you say that's sort of aligned with the conservative GOP that we see now, or is it a different interpretation of conservative? I'd say it's not that wouldn't be the right take of it. So I'd, I'd say that the one student block here was students of colors and leftist white students who were a lot more leftist in their views, obviously. And you had the more conservative Greeks, I guess it would be more accurate to call them centrist in a way, instead of completely conservative. Mm-hmm. So what happens from there? So over the next ten years, you see unofficial slates pop up, such as a reform slate, which was basically formed by the Bruin Democrats. They created their own unofficial reform slate, and they endorsed candidates as part of that slate. And candidates weren't happy that they were being added to the slate and asked to be removed from it. So you can see that people didn't really like the association of slate politics during the 70s. This is maybe the second or third major incident of a slate being trying to be part of the student government at UCLA. The reform slate was a pretty minor incident in student council history. In fact, during the 70s, things were relatively low-key in student council politics. However, in the background, you had students of color were mobilizing and forming groups and increasing their political power on campus in the background. So, Erika Yamasaki, who was, um, I guess, a student at UCLA, wrote a thesis about the racialization of student government politics at UCLA between 1968 and 1995. So in her paper, she mentions the undergraduate enrollment by race between 1973 to 1998. Keep in mind, 1973 is the first year that UCLA had to categorize data by race. So in 73, you had the UCLA undergraduate enrollment per race was 71% white and about 20-30% students of color. And you can see that slowly changes over the years. In 1983, the student body is then 61% white and 20% Asian. 
and 6% African-American and 8% Chicano Latino. And then finally in 1998, you can see that the student body is 34% white, 16% Chicano Latino, 38% Asian-American and 5.6% African-American. One of the reasons this might have happened was due to changes in immigration law in 1965, which allowed more immigrants to come from Asian countries, which obviously led to an increase in the number of Asian students enrolled in UCLA. This bill says simply that from this day forth, those wishing to immigrate to America shall be admitted on the basis of their skills and their close relationships to those already here. And you also have that affirmative action was ended in California and was made illegal, which led to much higher percentage of Asian American students enrolled at UCLA and other campuses across California. While this was, while these changes were happening, the student groups on campus that represented students of color, namely Asian Coalition, the Black Student Alliance, and Mecca, which was representing Chicano Latino students, basically were organized together to form what was known as the Third World Coalition, basically representing students of color on campus. And the main, the way they came up on the stage was during the 1981 election. Sam Law was the first Third World Coalition candidate to win against the Greek life machine in 1981. Machine? Yes, it was a machine in a way because Greek life students were in a way organized to vote for their candidates. I see. These students of color, backed by the Third World Coalition, were very leftist, progressive, secured a majority of the student council seats in the 1981 election, and basically shook the foundations of the Greek life power structure that had sustained student government over the past previous 60 years. So before the rise of the Third World Coalition, there was no challenge to Greek dominance by a collective unit with a name and an agenda. So this is a very major turning point in student politics at UCLA. So what you're saying is that sort of before this 1981 election, the challenges to Greek life candidates was either independent or diffused. There was really no united party or front, you could say, that sort of opposed this Greek life united bloc. Yeah, that's right. In fact, Sam Law, during the debates, he very pointedly said that the student council needs to be political and look at issues that are political outside of the USA student body. So sort of what happens from there? We, right now there's a Greek life entity um, or coalition of Greek life entities and then there's a coalition of students of color organization. Um, would you say that's sort of the defining moment of slate politics? Well, yeah, in a way, this is when the Third World Coalition really took root and actually became a very potent political force on campus. For example, a white council member who served as part of the student council said that they were really nervous in 1984 because if you, you knew that if you didn't have the endorsement of the Asian Pacific Coalition, you were going to lose. Wow. So effectively, these are powerful groups that can control and sinker or float your nomination. 
Yeah, that's right. In the mid-80s, the Third World Coalition was basically controlling who would be on the student government. In fact, it was found that students of color were more likely to vote for a white progressive candidate than a person of color who was a moderate, moderate candidate. So right now we have two really big political blocks. You have Greek Life Coalition that you know, really is loosely composed of the Greek life houses. And on the other hand, you have a powerful political bloc composed of students of color organizations. Where do we see sort of the formation of a Greek life coalition, per se? So here's from an article in the LA Times published in the 1980s about UCLA student politics, which is pretty interesting that they were covering that. So the article says that many Jewish students began to join forces with fraternity members in student politics. Now, why this happened was because the progressive students, backed by the students of color, were against, were pro-Palestine, and they were, by effect, against Zionism. And this basically motivated Jewish students. Wow. So international politics basically step into the scene. I'd say international politics were always part of USAF. But this sort of becomes far more racialized and divisive than it was before. Yes, you would see now you have the Greek students and Jewish students on one end and progressive students of color on the other end, at least according to this article from the LA Times. And sort of what happens from there with this sort of two united fronts? So the Third World Coalition is still pretty strong at this point, though I think it's noteworthy to mention the 1988 election when there were kind of near riots on campus after a student a student who was backed by the Third World Coalition ended up being disqualified and students of color were very upset at the terms on which he was qualified after he had already won the election. And... Basically, they decided to, basically, that led to their candidate being disqualified and the Greek life-supported candidate ended up winning the presidency. And immediately the year after that, they bounced back to take back a majority of seats on the council. What happened was this Third World Coalition identifier ended up being dropped by progressive students in the late 1980s. And the faction moved away from acknowledging that it had a race-based constituency. And the coalition evolved into calling itself Student Power, then Students First, and then finally Praxis. And though these names were different, they, the political agenda was pretty much the same over the years. Basically, they fought for progressive causes like maintaining affirmative action programs. And sort of, I guess you could say that that solidified the students of color slate per se right yeah so example you have this article in the daily boon published in 1995 which mentions how slates have become a really major part of usac and how student candidates have unofficially aligned themselves with election slates so in this article they mentioned that the greek machine dominated the political arena at ucla and then in 1980, you had the Third World Coalition emerge. And now in 95, these slates were like pretty solidified into culture of student councils. 
there was also emergence of new slates as well. For example, on-campus housing council started weighing in and on elections as well. Ah, so you could say that sort of these coalitions were a lobbying political tactic. Exactly. They were an elevating body. So the way to get yourself elected was to get yourself bolstered by these groups. In a way, yes. So what happens from there? So then we move on to 1999, where white students' participation was very minimal, and progressive students had significant control over the student council between 1995 and 1999. Erika Yamasaki writes that this scenario was a flashback to the early years of Greek dominance when few non-organization students participated. And you also have this shift in the power dynamics of the progressive coalition. For example, when students first became Praxis, Mecca opted out of the coalition, but it still had the Asian Pacific Coalition, the African Students Union, Raza Women, and Samahang Filipino. But then for the 1999 elections, Asian Pacific Coalition pulled out of Praxis and supported its own slate of seven Asian American women, while the other groups remained with Praxis. So there was this splintering of the faction. What about the Greek life's Jewish Student Coalition, if we could call it that? Is that receding as well? So you did have this Greek Life-backed coalition existing and going by the name of the Equal Access Coalition, which is a very centrist name, I must say. (laughs) And yeah, it exists in the late 90s, early 2000s, but it's not a very strong political force. And then the moment comes when it transforms into Bruins United. Basically, this slate has, was backed by Bruin Democrats, Bruin Republicans, and Greek Life together, and started in 2005. So we have Bruins United on one side. What happens to the Third World Coalition turned students first turned Praxis? Praxis ends up going through multiple changes over the years between 2001 and 2006. Goes changes to student empowerment, then changes to students first, then changes to student power, and then it goes back to calling itself students first. So the name keeps changing, but in a way, it still represents the progressive agenda and UCLA. But in the same way, you have Bruins United on the other hand, created in 2005, and the year it is first created, it ends up winning a majority of seats on the council. And then in 2006, you can see that Bruins United won 6 of 13 seats, and then the next year, 8. And then Bruins United kind of goes through a lull after that, where it only wins a couple of seats between 2009 and 10 and 11, not a strong majority. And then it comes back in 2011. So you can see they're kind of like trading punches between the Progressive Coalition and what is now known as Bruins United. And it kind of goes back and forth now. You don't see one kind of coalition having like one decade of dominance on the council. They keep switching sides. And then in 2014, you have the divestment debate at UCLA. So we have this very heated debate over whether the student government should vote to divest from companies that work with the Israeli government. 
And this is mainly a symbolic vote. It doesn't really force the university or force the UC regents to comply with that vote. But debate is really heated and there were some very large meetings that happened, very large and long meetings that happened with students giving comment over whether or not the council should divest from Israel. And in the end, you have an 8-2-2 vote in November 2014, where USAC passes a divestment resolution to divest from companies that work with Israel. And this sets the stage for the Bruinsonite comeback in a way, because they have the Greek life community, and they also have the Jewish student community, who really were not happy, were mostly not happy that the student council would take such a divisive move against Israel. This sets the stage for a backlash against progressive candidates, and even more importantly, there was a controversy that happened with Let's Act, which was now the name of the Progressive Coalition in 2014 and 2015. So Let's Act documents leaked right before the election in 2015, and Turns out that they allegedly spent student fee funds on past two campaigns, sold alcohol and marijuana to raise campaign revenue, and solicited money from student groups in return for representation in the slate. Let's Act denied that these documents were theirs, and a USAC investigation in 2015 ended up finding that USAC funding was not at all used for campaign spending, or at least didn't find any evidence that money was spent on campaigns but the documents were really damaging to Let's Act and Progressive Coalition, which ended up winning only three seats on the council table while Bruins United won eight out of 14. This kind of huge defeat ends up blowing apart the Progressive Coalition, which is now backed by what are known as the mother organizations, namely African Student Union, Samohang Filipino, Vietnamese Student Union, Asian Pacific Coalition, Mecca, Muslim Students Association, and other organizations. The next year, they don't really have a strong presence in the election. You do have this slate called the Waves of Change, which is running on a more progressive agenda as compared to Bruins United, which is backed by Greek life students and Jewish students. And that year, Bruins United ends up increasing its majority on the council table in 2016, winning nine of 14 seats. And Waves of Change ends up winning only one solitary seat. So at this point, you can see how effective turnout is because Bruins United was able to turn out their base, which is Greek life students and Jewish students. And the students of color base didn't really turn out in support of ways of change. They came close, but not close enough. So what you're saying is basically in this 2014-2015 year, a combination of this very divisive divestment vote by the council and the sort of apolitical yet nonetheless damaging allegations um, about Let's Act spending student fees, selling alcohol and marijuana to raise campaign revenue, all of that combined basically topples the Student of Color Coalition. Yes, it does for a period of two years. What changes? It wouldn't be USAC unless there was this kind of major watershed moment that changes everything. In May 2017, you have this image released of then Bruins United President Danny Siegel making a gang sign. Now, the image was taken a year before that, but ends up being leaked 
right before election, right before the election. And students of color and mostly mainly mother organizations were very upset that he would so flippantly make a gang sign and image and act like it was no big deal, like, you know, that this white student was doing that. And there was a very heated USAC council meeting the week of election where students from other organizations voiced their anger at that Danny Siegel for doing something that insensitive. And this is kind of the point at which the mother organizations step back into the arena and make themselves heard in the USAC election and end up backing the progressive students who are running for council. Now, there isn't really a slate, major slate running on a progressive agenda with a lot of students, but there were several independent students that were, were running on their own progressive agendas. And what you see was Brunsiai ends up getting toppled. They only win four out of 14 seats on the council table. This is kind of different from what you had from the past 20 years where you had the student power versus students first, equal access coalition, Bruins United, and now you have independents dominating the council and slates aren't really there in the picture. What happens the next year? So the next year you do have a kind of emergence of a progressive slate by the name of For the People. They, they only run three candidates for three contested positions, but you also have several independent candidates and candidates running on their own slates who have their own progressive agendas. And at the same time, you do have Bruins United running on their agenda. Not explicitly a conservative agenda of any sort, but it's not really, you can tell that it's not really a progressive agenda or a leftist agenda that they're running on. And in the 2018 election, Bruins United ends up winning only three seats out of 14, fewer than the previous year. And you can see that the students of color on campus have once again made an impact on the election. We talked a lot about how in the past there were these sort of two fronts. There is the Bruins United coalition composed of Greek life community and Jewish students who were sort of upset about this, the divestment of the Israel-Palestine debate. And on the other hand, you have students of color, a more progressive leftist community that's sort of striving to push for changes on campus. And what we see is that, in, at least in the past two years, that this progressive slate doesn't exist on paper. But I wondered if you could speak to sort of how similar this is to how the Third World Coalition operated in the 1960s before the 1981 election, where it officially brought a candidate to the table. Yeah, I guess it would be pretty similar to what we had in the 80s, where the Third World Coalition was working in the background to basically elevate students of color and left students onto the council. Now, I'd like to point out that students who are either parts of Bruins United or who are the progressive independents, they aren't really explicitly and consciously saying, oh, I'm backing only the Greek life students, so I'm only going to serve the persons of color on campus and I'm really anti-Greek life. No, no one is explicitly saying that or being that consciously making that decision. It's kind of happening and you have the center-left party, Bruins United, and you have the leftist students who have their own agenda and it kind of separates out in that way. So would you say that sort of that divide between those two groups is as 
noticeable as it was back in the 1980s and 1960s? Well, I guess it, I can't really speak to what happened in the 1980s. Of course, of course. I wasn't there the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's really all happening in the background. I'd say it was happening in the background back then, and it is still happening in the background back right now. So I guess given this very long USAC slate politics history, would you say that the effect of conclusion is that where we are currently is in a way an iteration of what we've seen in the years past? Well, I guess it does change for a bit, but I think we're kind of in this middle period where we're going to see this back and forth between the progressive candidates and the centrist candidates. I see. Thank you, Abhishek. Thank you. That's it for this week's In The Know podcast. We'll catch you all in two weeks for our next episode with a different Daily Bruin staffer. Got any ideas we wish to talk about for a future episode? Send us an email at opinion at dailybruin.com. From The Daily Bruin, I'm Keshav Tharimeti, and this is In The Know.